Rachel Lee is one of our project's founders. She was inspired to start interviewing lesbians of a certain age through her friendship with Alda Talley. Before knowing Alda, Rachel had never even heard of any of the bars or realized there had ever been so much of a scene here in New Orleans. Um, and as soon as I heard their stories, I wanted to know more um, and started talking to my friend Bonnie Gable about doing something creative with these stories. And then Rachel brought it to me and originally we were gonna make a Drag King musical. Um, and when we took that back to Mary and Alda, um, they immediately connected us with lists and lists of people to get in touch with. And we realized pretty quickly this is gonna be more than just a show. This is um, needs to be an archive and needs to be interviews with a lot more people than could possibly fit in one performance. And so project's been growing from there, but I think that a couple of the original impulses were like trying to figure out what happened to the bars, but also what we lost um, when they weren't there anymore. And I think a lot of us have had, had been having trouble finding other queer or lesbian friends. <laughs> um, and that also was part of the impulse. You're listening to Last Call an oral history project about New Orleans' disappearing dyke bar scene. In this episode, we get to the questions that inspired this project to begin with. Now, I can't tell you why they don't have a bar there now. You know, uh, would I ever think there wouldn't be a bar? No. no. I'd open a bar if I knew there was no bars. You know. I'd figure a way to do it. Yeah. You know. And, uh, that was always my goal, was to work it to where I could open a real nice women's bar. Well, well she, she died. died. Charlene. And uh, Pino's and died with Pino's, Pino's. And Kitty's died with Kitty's. Yeah. And Alice Brady's died with Alice Brady. Well, Alice died, and Charlene both had closed their bars before, uh, sometime before they died. I know, but they aged, let's say they aged yeah, out. But they aged out, I guess, yeah. Because my generation doesn't go to bars anymore. Now, this didn't just happen since Katrina. As we got older and matured, it was just not something we cared about doing. I mean, there were other places we could go. And there was a period of time where women went out more. And there was a change in, in the and there's context. A, and there's a change in the, the culture and context. the context. We really haven't had a need for them in the past 20, 25 years, you know? And then actually, you know, women started having more options and they didn't go to the bars as much. You know, when it was easier for people to be out, we didn't need the refuge as much. So I think that was a big deal, a big part of it. Little did we know that mainstreaming would lead to no streaming, <laughs> you know? Let's investigate this idea because it was one of the things we heard the most from our interviews. By the way, you heard the voices of Ellen Rabin, Alda Talley, and Mary Capps, Marty Youngblood, Max Seisler, Donna Bechet Kilborn, and Liz Simone. Here's Alda and Mary again describing what they see as the major differences in the social climate for queer folk between the heyday of the bars and today. I mean, you know, being a lesbian is not 
um, as dangerous day to day on the street, in your jobs, at home, at school. It's, it's not. I mean, we don't have a lot of legal protections today, but there's a social protection. It is not so socially acceptable to, for example, kill us, fire us, kick you out of your homes, refuse to loan, loan you money to buy a house. People felt like they were doing a righteous, just thing if they discriminated against you. So for us, in those times, the only place, when you step through that door, you are in your space, and it was the only place like that. Liz Simone. There was nowhere else to, to, to find anyone. Who, there was nowhere else to meet a, 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 a similar soul, you know? Except you went to the bars. Now, people are just much more revealing of their sexuality. You know, I, I started the coming out support group here in the city in 1984, okay? And then it was a big thing here in New Orleans. I mean, you know, first group had 39 people. A lot happened in just 10 years, you know? And, and in those 10 years, and 10 years after that, the mainstreaming of gay acceptance, I just wonder how much that has had to do with the loss of um, the loss of the lesbian bar. Let's be clear. No one is saying that the gay rights movement is over or that now all gay people enjoy the same level of privilege across the country. But the visibility of queerness certainly has taken off in the last 20 years. New Orleans native Ellen DeGeneres is out with her own talk show and media empire. Laverne Cox has been featured on the cover of Time, Entertainment Weekly, and Variety, just to name a few. In a recent poll conducted by J. Walter Thompson Innovation Group, only 48% of American teens identified as exclusively heterosexual. Online dating platforms, almost entirely across the board, cater to a broad spectrum of sexuality. Bonnie Gable had a conversation with one of our collaborators, Indy Mitchell, about this very subject. And they kind of just didn't buy it. Well, no, 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 it's partially true, for sure. I, I think that, like, sometimes in some circles, as long as you, like, toe the line yeah. and, like, are a certain way and look a certain way um, and buy into, like, in some ways buy into patriarchy, um, and like live within a white supremacist framework. Like as long as you're like towing all of those lines, then it's okay to be yeah. queer. Wait, so then what do you, what do you think is? Why do I think? Yeah. That, well, I think that you get it. I think that assimilation is like part of the reason. No. Like I think that like because as long as we tow the line, we're okay. That people are just assimilating. Yeah. Um, in order to like get closer to access, get closer to privilege, and so they don't need places. Um, there's not as many people who, like, need places to be in community together. While in some ways all of this points to huge victories on the gay rights battlefront, it also has changed the shape and needs of the lesbian community. I mean, Ruby Free Jungle, which is a bar we haven't really talked about and was arguably one of the last dyke bars in New Orleans. Um, it was opened in the 90s and closed after about 10 years and reopened again and then 
closed again, but it was hugely popular and very inclusive. All kinds of people hung out there, gay, straight, men, women. The club had become mainstream. Gay had become mainstream. But if mainstreaming was the only force at play, then at least by some logic, we could expect not to have any gay bars left at all in New Orleans or anywhere. But of course, that's not the case. There are many mostly male, mostly white gay bars in New Orleans today. So what's up with that? I think a lot of it is the challenges of being a woman and owning a business um, and having your clients or having your customers be mostly women. Just like Charlene, you could make money on a Friday and Saturday night, but the rest of the week, yeah. it probably didn't pay her to open up the doors to pay the electricity or to keep the beer cold, you know, because you'd go in there and what, you might have five or six people in there with five or six people, even if they serious drinkers are not going on. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm going to keep the money going. It's super crazy that a lot of these lesbian bars did not turn into straight bars. They turned into gay male bars. Mm. And somebody was like, oh, they, lesbian bars closed because patriarchy. Mm. Because, like, women's economic power is just less. Yeah. That makes sense, too. Yeah. And it feels like they were at their peak here in like the 80s, which was like a time of like people had more money. Yeah. And there were some in the 90s and they all were closed. By the time that I moved here, like the last one closed when I moved here, which was, we were in the middle of a recession. Yeah. And so it's cur- It's like interesting to me to think about like how have, how has the rise and fall like mapped with like economic trends and are yeah. women and queer women just like harder hit by all of that. Yeah. And then once we don't have space anymore, how can we consolidate our economic power? Exactly. At the end of the day, I think it's like a combination of all of those things. Yeah. Yeah, I think that in New Orleans particularly, it's such a small subgroup. Like, it's a sub-community. And then we, like, <laughs> and then we subdivide. And, like, there's, because of serious issues in the community, right? Yeah. Because of, like, racism in the queer community that there's like these like the queer community ends up dividing even further along racial lines or along class lines as well it's something that we heard about in the past and so then you have a bar that's catering to like such a niche part of the population that unless like everybody comes there super frequently this is indie like networks and like communities are two like major things that feel have been lost and then I feel like I find myself searching for and I feel like a lot of my friends are searching for too. Like just trying to find space to meet people, find space to like find space to like socialize and like and socialize with people who you like don't have to worry about like random things happening or like homophobic things happening and stuff like that. Um, like finding people that's like really close to you and friends and stuff. Here's Liz again. I mean I think it's a huge loss. I don't want to go to a men's bar. Nothing against men. It's a totally different atmosphere. It, it makes me very sad that I, I do not have um, a place to hang out. You know, it's, it's kind of like back in the closet again. Only I'm not in the closet. 
Blue Rain came to join the Last Call team in a way that echoes the call of the 80s dyke bar. I had wondered why there were no spaces in New Orleans really to go. And so when I, I found out about the project and what was happening with the project, I got into the history of it and, and realized that other people were thinking the exact same thing while I was thinking it. There was a history behind it. There were stories. And, um, and we had the opportunity to create a new space in hopes of creating more spaces that were similar to the spaces that they had before. Indy also came to the project searching for something. At the time, I was like looking for more explicitly queer things because I dance in the African company and it's really awesome and great and <laughs> it's super hetero and hard and complicated. Um, so I just needed like, a, I needed somewhere where I can like be queer and make a thing with people and perform with people and like find like more like queer like arts community um, and yeah so that's what like brought me on and I think like that's been a big thing that Last Call has been like filling like a big like void I guess that Last Call has been like helping to fill for me it's like finding people and like spaces to explore things creatively and like it still be like an explicitly queer thing. Bonnie again. And also across across race. So I think that the queer communities here are super segregated. And so yeah. that's been another thing that I think that Lost Call's been like been trying to do. Yeah, and yeah, I should say this too. I feel like part of why I continued working with Lost Call okay, because I think in the in the past like I've done things that I've made work that's been explicitly queer and like collaborate with like queer like artists and people and most of those things tend to be like these like very white things and like Last Call is a place where even as we are like still like a mainly white like institution or organization let's say um, I think there's a lot of room for people to push back against that um, I think that everyone comes in knowing that like we don't have a perfect model of like how to create like the world that we want to see in the world and we're just like attempting um to do those things and knowing that like you know we're gonna like fuck up and, and when we do mess up there's like there's like a, there's like ways to deal with that there's ways to to like start something else or like try a different like approach um so i've appreciated the space like especially as a black person to that I can like collaborate like multiracially and or in a multiracial space and like not feel like I can't just like call out things when they're like fucked up or like really say how I'm feeling. Um, like I feel like held and taken care of in like ways that I haven't felt in other like predominantly white queer spaces, um, which feels good and why I continue to do the work too. <laughs> We have events, fundraisers, and, and house parties, and it kind of brings the community together. I feel like a lot of what was lost in losing those spaces and losing those bars is a gathering place, a safe, comfortable gathering place. Um, and so when we come together and have our events, we invite you know, people who are involved in, and in, in the allies also, not just queer people, but allies as well. I have met new people who I don't think I would have ever met mm -hmm. through this 
project, like it can feel like a real small world here, but having a space to actually gather and intentionally um, having people reach out to their folks and bring in, in new people. I've definitely met older women who I would not have met. For me, when, when older lesbians approach me and go, oh, well, what are you doing this week? And I'm like, oh, you guys care what we're doing. That's, that's the exciting part because before I was like, well, what did y'all do and what are you doing now? And I hear stories about how maybe they'll um, gather together, people who used to hang out together in the bar, go out to eat. You know, they still keep community and stay with each other and they're still um, friends and everything. But we... Uh, they also want to know what the younger generation is doing to continue the legacy, so to speak. So that's kind of exciting for me. One of the most rewarding moments for me in the project was attending the workshop performance of alleged lesbian activities this fall, and I was crammed in the in the back because it was so crowded and overflowing with people but I got to sit at this high table where I could look out at the audience and see all of the women who were there whose stories were in the piece mm -hmm. um, and it's powerful to share space with the people whose stories you're telling especially um, given that we have spent so much time really building relationships with folks and not just harvesting their stories and taking them away somewhere else but really building relationships mm -hmm. um, to see those people laughing and um, tearing up and hitting on the performers during the show <laughs> um, was really spectacular as queer movements have been co-opted and become increasingly conservative and lobbying really just for the experiences of a small portion of queer communities, I think it's important to look back to our history to the the rough edges of where we weren't just trying to fit into mainstream society and where we actually had our own spaces and develop some of that political consciousness um, that sometimes gets lost in the telling of queer history um, and I think it's especially important to tell those stories in ways that center the experiences of um, people of color and um, of trans people um, and we've tried to really take our time with this project to make sure that um, it's not just telling one story but it's really um, unearthing all the all the different communities that were existing simultaneously and sometimes overlapping and sometimes not overlapping um, and dig into that and dig into the tensions that exist in our history yeah and I feel like in ways too it feels like this like new place to like learn and um, and grow like I want to say like politically or like on some like state of like some consciousness levels um it definitely feels like politically relevant or like politically like situated and like conscious of like what's going around or what's going on and like who is in the space and like um like that feels important and like a gap that maybe has been filled like a space where you can come and like i don't know and someone like who is in community with you and like cares about you enough to like push you to be like actually no this is like 
what this is. Like, this is my pronouns, and, like, this is what pronouns mean. And, like, oh, when you say that, that's, like, low-key racist, and that's why it's racist, and, like, you know? It was amazing to me how many people came to the performance and how many people were mad because they couldn't get into the performance because we sold out a week before the performance opened. Yeah. Because it feels like people are really hungry. You know, and that was a workshop, but it feels like people are really hungry to be in space together. Yeah. And to see themselves reflected in media and to um, yeah and to have space to feel comfortable like and at the end of the performances people would just hang out yeah. by the they'd go get drinks from the bar and then come back into like the dive bar that we made yeah and like drink there and put their drink on on the bar that Chanel built and it like became that space that yeah. people could um, could be together in Somebody tonight called it the carrot. The they carrot. were like, we're, we're working so hard to build the carrot. Like the thing that will make people come and be in space together. Mm. And then we can all talk. And yeah. Like, that is the magic of the thing, is actually like the conversations that we're having together. Mm-hmm. There are things that come out of the conversations. Yes. Yeah. I think that's a beautiful image. <laughs> The idea of like us making the carrot. I just see like all of us coming to the carrot tea. That's cute. But um I think We I'm could definitely... have more than one carrot then if all of us are gonna yeah, eat it. It's true. Like I really thought of like the thing where the carrot's like dangling in front of you yeah. but you can't quite get it. Um, no, but we can get it. Exactly. I was like, but that's not right, Indy, because we could totally get the carrot. <laughs> There's just lots of carrots coming from the from the sky. Next is a huge question. Because, of course, like, I feel like it doesn't just, like, stop with the performance. At least this project, in my opinion, doesn't stop with the performance. And, like, and there's so much that could come out of it. Like, I know there's, like, lots of dreaming of, like, a space of some sort. Um, or even, like, for me, I think of, like, I dream about, like, connecting more generations of people, like, working with younger people. Um, somehow and like this performance I think would be like a great what's next thing. Once again, Liz Simone. Yeah, there have been many, many times actually, I'm, I'm not trying to brag, but there have been many times that I feel like I have been a part of history. And uh, I feel privileged. And. Uh, maybe every generation feels like they've been a part of history. Saying all this stuff makes me sad. <laughs> it's funny. But generally, I'm content with where I am. Remembering it makes me sad because I remember all the people and all the times and all the connections and all the vitality and all the... Oh, wow, all the, that's a lot of living, you know? Just a lot of living. Thank you for listening to Last Call. 
Today, you heard the voices of Rachel Lee, Bonnie Gable, Ellen Rabin, Alda Talley and Mary Capps, Marty Youngblood, Max Seisler, Donna Bechet Kilborn, Liz Simone, Blue Rain, and Indy Mitchell. With interviews by Bonnie, Rachel, Aaron Roussel, Hannah Pepper Cunningham, and Sarah Pick. This podcast was produced by me, Free For All, with help from Rachel and Bonnie. Peter Bowling and I made the music. Last Call's core organizers are Asia Vinay Palmer, Blue Rain, Bonnie Gable, Aaron Roussel, Sarah Pick, and Indy Mitchell. We're launching a Kickstarter to help fund our fall performances of alleged lesbian activities, as well as the development of our archive. We want to continue to keep queer oral history alive. If that's important to you, or you've appreciated this podcast or our other work, please consider donating. Just search for Last Call on Kickstarter. And of course, you can always find out more about us and what we're doing at lastcallnola.org. Thank you so, so much. You're very, very welcome. Um, yeah, it's really an honor to hear all this from you. Oh, I hope I, hope, I, hope I gave you something. A lot. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, you can stop recording. Goddamn, I'm 68 years old. Who would ever thought it? You know? Yeah. Yeah.